Hello, you're listening to Wait, How Do You Spell That? A Rare Disease Podcast. My name is Colby, and I'm the content manager here at PatientWorthy. Today, we're going to be discussing SAMD9L mutations and their connection to a range of conditions, including bone marrow failure disorders, cytopenia, and ataxia pancytopenia syndrome. And to help in our discussion today, I'm happy to introduce a very special guest. Nathan Ehrlich is a patient advocate who was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia at age 16. Following treatment and remission, Nathan began to experience a range of neurological symptoms that has led him on a search for answers for over 10 years. He's here today to share his story and talk about why genetic testing for SAMD9L in patients in remission from bone marrow failure disorders, such as AML, is so important. Nathan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. To start with, let's talk about the diagnosis that started this journey for you. As I mentioned in the intro, you were diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia, also known as AML, when you were a teenager. Can you give us a quick overview of that condition and talk about your experiences at that time in your life? It's a pretty confusing time to get something like that handed to you. I was 16 years old. My health had been perfect up until then, and it manifested um, by showing. very exaggerated bruises um, all over my body. You know, I remember playing a a dead arms game with one of my friends and uh, he was proudly walking around school showing the damage that he had done to my upper arm. Dead arms is when you, you know, take turns hitting each other in the the bicep, but, um, you know, very mature high school stuff. Essentially, my dad, who's a doctor, looked at some of my bruises and he's like, he's not very alarmist. And, uh, So I was a little alarmed when he thought that I should get a platelet count checked, platelets being the uh, blood clots in your body. When I had it checked, it was, they were at 5,000 and normal is, uh, you know, 150,000 plus. Based on that, he took me to a hematologist. The hematologist looked at a blood smear. They can tell from a blood smear if, um, if your disease is somewhat progressed and, um, He was able to see some of the sort of immature um, white cells that you start producing uh, if you have leukemia. And so I was diagnosed, you know, it was basically like one day normal high school, 16-year-old stuff, next day residency in a hospital for, I think it was about two months before I had a break. You know, it's a a shock to the system. Um, I had to have a big family of three brothers and parents were there for me. So, you know, people kind of helped pull me through it. But essentially, when you have, at least back then, you know, protocols have changed um, since 2000 when I was diagnosed. But um, essentially, when you have AML, the first thing that, that they look to do is to, and when I say they, I mean the doctors, um, they want to do a bone marrow transplant because um, that's the sort of uh, gold standard for keeping relapses away and really developing a a new bone marrow graft that's healthy. The caveat is that bone marrow transplantation is, um, it's a pretty hefty thing to do on the body. Um, They essentially give you enough chemo and radiation to destroy your bone marrows to make room for um, the new marrow. My brother was uh, a match for me, so I was able to get his marrow. You know, I kind of feel like in 20 years' time, they're going to look on bone marrow transplants like they do lobotomies, sort of like they used to do what? But uh, (laughs) it battle tests you, that's for sure. 
that was successful for you, uh, that, that treatment. And you, you lived in remission from AML for quite some time, I understand, before you began to experience neurological symptoms that were seemingly unrelated to what you were experiencing before, correct? Can you talk about what happened? I got lucky, quote unquote. I mean, I, I had a, you know, I don't know if there's any way to say normal transplant experience, but I didn't, there were no major hiccups. I never ended up in the ICU. You know, I had some some pneumonias afterwards that I had to be hospitalized for, which is pretty standard. I was able to, you know, go to undergraduate school and sort of keep up academically. You know, I in the grand scheme, um, I was doing pretty well. People can end up with graft versus host disease. That that's that can be pretty nasty. I did have little bit of graft host disease, but it was minor and it was on my skin and I was able to get treatment for it near school. So for having what I had, um, I would say I did pretty well. And um, I did things like go traveling afterwards. I worked from the film industry. I did, you know, I sort of read it ready to leave the sick world behind me a little bit. Um, I even remember going to um, support groups back then and deciding to stay away from them because I thought it was sort of keeping me focused on something that I didn't need to focus on. And then it was about like in 2012, 2013, where I started to experience a growing number of undeniably harsh symptoms that were very aggressively explained away by anyone I would see medically. Uh, one factor that rare patients often talk about is the time to diagnosis. And we know that on average, it takes rare disease patients uh, five to seven years to find out what is happening to them. Uh, and that's often across multiple doctors, multiple different fields of specialty. You know, I know that search can be very frustrating. Uh, can you talk about some of your experiences in seeking answers during this time? What makes it so torturous and grueling is in part the sort of the dismissiveness. So, you know, I'm, I was a transplant patient in 2000, and then I show up in 2013 to various New York hospitals asking for the hemonc department because I need to see a hematologist, oncologist, because I'm having issues with my, you know, issues related to my transplant. They thought I was a crackpot. They weren't listening to me when I would tell them like all the things that were going wrong. And they kind of just tallied it up to, you know, this patient is a complainer, you know, he, uh, he suffered a lot having had a transplant. And that causes a lot of things to happen at an earlier age, maybe at 20, you feel more like 40. And so he's griping about, you know, some arthritis that he has. And, you know, I, I could buy that narrative for a certain amount of time. But when things start happening that uh, like you can't remember where you are all of a sudden, uh, or you are tripping and falling down a flight of steps, or you're getting into a car accident that you shouldn't have gotten into, um, and you're not, and you're trying to like remember exactly what happened and you can't, it starts to dawn on you that there's something missing here. You start getting like a lot of mixed responses. So doctors will first want to say something like, residual side effects from chemo, you know, that's an easy thing to kind of say. But once in a while, you know, a more honest doctor would say, I've never seen anyone have this kind of residual side effect from chemo at this timetable that you're describing without having, you know, some kind of major incident during transplant. 
So, you know, I had enough sort of truth tellers along the way that alerted me to the fact that um, there was something off here. And the closest explanation that I could come up with, and that really any clinician could come up with, was uh, perhaps a chronic graft versus host disease of the nervous system. But that was kind of met with a pretty robust skepticism. There comes a point in time where you just have to keep digging because there's nothing else to do. By 2018, I had a seizure that put me um, on disability. And so I had no um, thing to fill my day uh, other than, you know, I had a young son at, by that point, but he was in daycare. All my time essentially was just reading and reading and reading. And you were eventually diagnosed with a condition called ataxia pancytopenia, which is a type of neurodegenerative inflammatory disease. Can you give us a quick overview of that condition and uh, talk about how you were finally diagnosed? In the process of going through having a kid, there's talk about genetic testing. And um, I had the thought at some point, like, genetic testing, that's the one thing I've never had. I think I've had every other test ever, except for genetic testing. So maybe I should do that. And Sloan Kettering has a pediatric genetics department. Now, Sloan Kettering told me none of my problems had anything to do with cancer or cancer treatment. And so I was barking up the wrong tree, essentially. But their pediatrics department was completely separate. So nobody batted an eye when I knocked on the uh, proverbial door of the uh, genetics department and, you know, told them what was going on and asked if I could get, you know, some kind of genetics panel that looked at both hematological and neurological diseases. I had three mutations come up. Mutations are pretty common, but one of them was highly, highly, highly suspect given my phenotype, you know, my history and what was going on with me. And that was the SAMD9L. And initially came back from the lab as a VUS, a, a variant of unknown significance, which um, a lot of doctors, you know, read as just means there's nothing wrong, which is, you know, kind of off base. But uh, the reason that it was coming back that way was mostly because the labs were not up to date on the latest case histories that had been written up of other families. Sloan Kettering told me nothing to see here. SAMD9L has no effect on what you're going through. That was believable for a couple of weeks, maybe. And then I, you know, went back to them and I told them I thought they were wrong. And they gave me some phone numbers of some of the SAMD9L experts in the country. And I proceeded to call all of them. Not a single one dissented from them saying, absolutely, this is the culprit of both your AML and your, uh, and your neurologic disease. This genetic mutation is actually linked to both of these conditions that you've experienced. So AML and ataxia pancytopenia, and it's called a SAMD9L mutation. And I know that's been studied for some time now as a gene that has an important job in regulating the immune system, but its connection via mutation to pediatric cancers and neurologic diseases was first described relatively recently, correct? And that was back in 2016 by Dr. Wendy Raskind at the University of Washington Department of Genome Sciences. Uh, you said before that uh, you had gotten the number for various experts. Um, and I know in 2020, at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, you actually contacted Dr. Raskin and others doing research around the topic of SAMD9L. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that and what the outcome was? It ran the gamut. Mostly people were very um, generous with their time with me. 
assuming that I got them at the right time, compassionate, you know, it wasn't just that they were nice, but that they were very much taking me on as an intellectual equal, you know, really telling me everything they knew, which was not that much. And it continues not to be that much, but it's certainly growing by leaps and bounds, I would say. Uh, There were a few experts that would talk to me for, you know, an hour plus on the phone, kind of just giving me sort of insight to the way they thought about what might be going on here with this gene and how it affects bone marrow failure and sort of their best guesses. And in terms of what to actually do, that was not clear. Mostly at that point, um, and still to this day, the guideline is just like, get your uh, MRI of your brain every year and watch it get worse and get your neurologic testing every year and watch it get worse. And it's just like, get monitored by a neurologist was like Mm -hmm. the going script sort of. And to me, it was like, well, they're I'm not in the business of just like sitting back and doing nothing while things are not going in the right direction. And surely there's going to be other people that feel that way as well, because they would have been through a transplant and they would have been um, active, um, smart patients. And so it was pretty surprising when I couldn't find any of them. That has to do mostly with the fact that they're testing pediatric patients for these um, gene mutations that cause uh, bone marrow failure syndromes, but they are not testing adults. They're even not testing adults in the follow-up care clinics when everything, you know, about the case suggests that there's a likely gene mutation at the heart of this thing. Uh, Share with us what you think the next steps are. What needs to be done for bone marrow failure patients, these adults who have sort of slipped through the cracks, uh, to help bring awareness to SAMD9L mutation? When I say like that, slipping through the cracks was like hell. I mean, it was that like doesn't even do it justice. You're just like so alone because you just know that something's wrong. And the people that are supposed to be the ones that can help you about there being something wrong are in denial. And so it squeezes your mind. I think it's mentally dangerous. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if if we've lost people because they didn't know what was wrong with them post-transplant and they didn't know what to do. I, I just had a meeting with some people at the National Cancer Institute and just for SAMD9L, which is one of eight mutations that cause MDS or AML, is they told me, you know, 25%. Uh, maybe that's inflated by one or 2% or something like that. But uh, 25% is pretty high. And when you count the number of adults that um, have gone through transplant uh, over the past uh, 20 years, uh, you start to get to a pretty high number. The only way that we're going to know how to help these current kids that are being diagnosed with SAMD9L is uh, for people like me to be guinea pigs, essentially. <clears throat> I don't mean that in a mean way. I want to be a guinea pig. You know, I want <clears throat> I want help. And so the only way that we're going to make progress here is to acknowledge the problem and to start doing something about it. And it's a, like, you know, it's a really hard ship to turn. It's like, uh, you know, like turning the Titanic. And this being a, a relatively new discovery in genetics, as you mentioned earlier, there's no ready-made support group for people who have a SAMD9L mutation. But I understand you're working towards changing that. Can you tell us about that? The first thing I did was put up a uh, Facebook page 
if you just put in the search um, SAMD9L genetic mutations, uh, you would find our group. That tends to mostly be um, parents um, of kids who are going through bone marrow failure. Um, and they're wondering, you know, where to, how to help their, their kids. And, you know, I'm a little far away from, you know, what steps you take with regard to getting ready for transplant or seeing if transplant's necessary, et cetera. But, um, you know, I've met enough clinicians that I can try and be as helpful as possible. And also it's a, it's a passive method so that a doctor can easily slip somebody the name of this, of my Facebook group, and they can, you know, voluntarily reach out. I have yet to encounter anyone like me uh, in that group, but I think they're coming. <laughs> they're going to start, I mean, I know they're going to start testing adults. I just, it can't happen soon enough because the other thing uh, that has to be remembered is that this is a, um, a heterozygous mutation. Um, it's a 50-50 chance of passing it on to next of kin. And um, a lot of patients um, who've had to go through the regimen of chemo that you need for a bone marrow transplant or for healing from a uh, bone marrow failure syndrome, they have to do um, IVF in order to get pregnant. And so there's the opportunity there to weed out these mutations from, you know, from passing them along. Uh, but there's no opportunity to do that if they don't know it, you know. That's one thing that I think is extremely important in terms of it needing to happen soon. Um, I also worry about the mental health of people who uh, are going through this kind of neurological condition where, you know, your central nervous system is not really working very well. So you start feeling like a 90-year-old in a 30-year-old's body, and, you know, you don't have your head on your shoulders in a way. Um, and it's, it's kind of a dangerous situation, and you definitely get referrals to psychiatrists and stuff, but I don't think the psychiatrists really understand the condition. So it's really a, a lonely place to be. And it got definitely got a lot less lonelier once I learned um, what, what I was dealing with. Just uh, having that anchor of knowing where you are, even if it doesn't change how you feel, you know, actually does change how you feel. Well, Nathan, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show today, sharing your story and talking about the important foundational work that you're doing to help build support and raise awareness about Sam D9L. We really appreciate it. Thank you, man. I appreciate you having me. And if you'd like to get in touch with Nathan, you can find his contact information as well as a link to the Sam D9L Mutations Facebook page in the show notes for this episode. And remember, you can always keep up with the latest in rare disease news by visiting patientworthy.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching for Patientworthy on those platforms. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. It may seem like a small thing, but a review or rating really does go a long way toward helping us out. Finally, if you have any questions about the podcast or perhaps an idea for a future episode, you can get in touch with me by sending an email to Colby, that's C-O-L-B-Y, at patientworthy.com. That does it for today's episode. Thank you once again to Nathan Ehrlich for joining us on the show today. And as always, thank you for listening.